to Dawn of Mantis, D-A-W-N of Mantis. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on TikTok, all kinds of places. Ivan, Joe, and Sam here. I don't know how you found us, but you found us. Just don't call us late for dinner. That's right. Just don't call <laughs> us late for dinner. Anyway, we're glad you're here. How are you, fellas? I'm good. Great. Excellent. Joe, do I'm you great, have... too. Wait. He didn't want to be one-upped by yeah. me. Yeah. Oh! Okay. I'm sorry. I meant to say I'm excellent. What if you Ivan? guys kept compounding it? I'm the best I've ever been in my whole entire life. I'm fantastic. Joe, Joe, do you have some kind of tasty, fantastic, true crime, mystery, or more? Yeah. Case over we don't there? even know what it's about. We don't know. We don't know. It's no a mystery idea. to us right now. Yeah, I figured we had a, a lighter-hearted one last week with the devil's footprints, so we're going to get right back into the blood and guts today. Oh man, okay. Yeah. Well, hey, we had a we kind of had a week off, I guess. We did from the mayhem. Yeah, now we're it's back. back. Now, yeah, we're not. Well, we're not just covering any gruesome case tonight. We are covering literally the worst mass murder in Canadian history. Wow. Oh my goodness! Yeah, tell me all about it. We're going right back in. <laughs> I do it every 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 time. Every time. I do it every time. <laughs> I'm, I apologize again, but I just can't stop. Don't apologize. I mean, they're the nicest people on the planet I've heard. I mean, it's super friendly, and then I do that to them. I, I'm very sorry. But anyway, <laughs> what do you have? Uh, what do you have up from up there in Canada? Well, yeah, let's just get right into it. Enough with the small talk, right? <laughs> and we don't have Canada dry tonight. No, we oh, don't. We can. I don't know if I want to anymore. <laughs> Since the Christmas episode. Oh, yeah, that whole Seagram's incident. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a Dr. Pepper in front of me tonight. We'll see if we can get them to bite on it. I think it's Cadbury that owns them. Is it really? It used to be, yeah. Well, hey, maybe we can use our Canadian accents if I'm quoting anybody tonight. <laughs> we can butcher that as well. What Canadian accent? Just say A a lot. A. Yeah, and in a boot. There you okay. go. That's, okay, I got it. got it. Nailed. That's it. Okay. That's a very bland description of an entire country. <laughs> I don't know. That's just it. watch the letter, Kenny. That's, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's Figured true. out. All right. All right. Well, tonight's story it took place in the summer of 1967 in the tiny farming community of Shell Lake, located in Saskatchewan, Canada. Okay. It consisted of a hotel, one cafe, and a pub. That's it. That was the whole town. Its main street wasn't even paved, and the community of 250 people was comprised almost entirely of farmers who made their living growing grain and raising cattle. It has always been common for farming communities to have a lot of kids to, you know, work on the farm. For example, my parents were married in 1940 and made most of their living working farms around Oklahoma and Kansas. They wasted no time in having seven kids before taking a break and then having their final kid in the mid-60s, then adopting me in 1980, meaning these poor people were raising kids for almost 60 years. Wow. Yeah. That was as great as the huh. 
We have replicated. What happened? We've duplicated. You didn't, didn't hear, hear it? it. He said, wow, at the same time. Really? It happened again. Yes. You've got to be kidding me. No. I, only, I only heard mine. Maybe I. Look at the waves. They're synced. They're identical. You guys, huh. I swear wow. to God. The huh and the wow. Yeah. I don't know if the, our listeners even what remember. What will it be next? It, it, I'll explain it, by the way. If it makes sense. I don't remember what uh, episode it was on, but I don't. I was just reading away like I do, and then Sam and Ivan. I'm not. I'm not meaning. Oh, at the same time, like it was exactly at the same. Like you could go to the millisecond on the wavelength on the computer, and they both went, huh? And so just now, you heard that again with them going, "Wow!" Exactly at the same time. I don't think we wow. sound exactly like that. Yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's what you sound like. <laughs> Anyway, no wow. one cares about that but us, but I think it's amazing. Are we Squidward? I wow. Know. Yeah. Wow, Joe. <laughs> so anyways, enough about my family. The family we're covering tonight, they were the Petersons. Okay. And they were much the same. The father, James, he had been raised on a farm himself. And after serving in World War II, he married a woman named Evelyn, and they settled down. Uh, the couple purchased several hundred acres of land near Shell Lake, and they started pumping out kids. Uh, because I just saw a, a comedian, I don't remember his name, but he was talking about his chores. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, when I was a kid, uh, our only chore was twice a week, me and my brother would have to roll the trash can out to the curb. And, yeah. if, and if we didn't do that chore, we'd get grounded. But like farm kids, if they don't do their chores, um, the bank forecloses on <laughs> your house. True. That's true. <laughs> so it's totally different. Yeah, and those farm kids, a lot of times they'll, go out before school and do things, which is crazy because it's like I'm waking my son up like 10 minutes before we have to go. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm not making my job any harder. They're like, little Jed Jr., you're going to get up at 4.30 a.m. All right, milk those cows, feed the hogs. Yeah. Break the ice off the cattle waterer. That's right. uh, Yeah. You got to do all those. Gather the eggs from the chickens and then you can go to school and learn. So, yeah, James and Evelyn get married, start having kids. The first child was a girl named Kathy. And over the next 20 years, they pretty much punched out a new baby every two or three years like clockwork. So after Kathy came another daughter, Jean, then uh, Mary, Dorothy, Pearl, and then the first boy named William, and then another girl named Phyllis, and then two more boys, Colin and little Larry. Okay. At the time of the event we're discussing tonight, James was 47, his wife Evelyn was 42, and the children's ages ranged from 19 down to just a year old. Now, the Petersons were a hardworking family who were liked and respected by everyone in and around Shell Lake. They attended church and were active in their community. Their family farm earned a modest income, but the family was thankful for what they had. They all lived in a small farmhouse with just two bedrooms. Wow. Yeah. James, Evelyn, and the youngest children, which were William, Phyllis, Colin, and baby Larry, they all slept in one room while the older children, uh, Jean, Mary, Dorothy, and Pearl, all slept in another. The oldest child, Kathy, like I just said earlier, she was 19 and had recently gotten married, and she was living with her husband halfway across Canada and B.C., British Columbia. That's a lot of people crammed into a five-room farmhouse, but the Petersons were very close-knit, and they didn't mind the close quarters. Like I said, they may not have had the finest of things, but they had each other. Yeah. So in 1967, Jean was in high school and was proving to be the outstanding athlete of the family. She was doing exceptionally well on the school track team and had been begging her father to let her go to an upcoming field and track camp in Dundurn. The camp was not cheap, and Dundurn was pretty far away in eastern Canada near Ontario. I'm sorry, Toronto. Forgive me, folks. Oh, that's what you're correcting. (laughs) Uh, 
we say track and field down here in the U.S. No, nope, yeah. no, nope, they don't talk about that up in Canada. So James had to figure out a way to raise some extra cash to pay for this trip. He uh, figured he could make part of the money by selling 50 bushels of hay to the nearby grain elevator. I don't know how much that would have made, but this was no small task. So he asked a neighbor named Wildrew Lang to meet him at the Peterson's family farm early the next morning. That would have been August 15th, 1967, and help him haul this hay into town. Okay? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Everybody got that? Got it. Selling some hay. Hauling some hay. The next morning, Lang arrived shortly before 9 a.m., a little later than he had intended. He began to load some of the wheat, but found it strange when James didn't come out to help him after a few minutes. He also realized that the house was eerily quiet. The tiny Peterson home had two adults and eight kids living inside, like we said, and quiet was never a word that you'd use to describe that place. Wait a second. Am I going to need to buckle my seatbelt? Is this a Velisca axe murderer? Oh, my goodness. You promised. No, no, I'm kidding. You never promised. I knew what I was getting into getting into this podcast, so I'm good. I had to know. Unlike Velisca, we're not going to get... In the Velisca episode, man, I really got into the details with just like... Oh, yes. Brain matter oh, and yes, bone chip. We're not doing that on this one. We're, we're not. Especially because most of them were kids. We're not yeah. going to do that. Wow. Did I ever tell you, Mariah was watching those ghost hunter dudes, the Sam and Colby, and they go to the Velisca house? No. They're YouTubers. Yeah. And there's actually indentions in the ceiling where they think, because the guy like used the, here I go, the guy used the axe the other way because you wouldn't want to like, I guess, I haven't thought about this, I promise, to put me on an <laughs> FBI watch list or whatever. You wouldn't want to use the sharp end of the axe to kill somebody because it's just going to stick every time. Ooh. So they said he used the blunt end probably. Wow. But there's a few places where there's like indentions in the ceiling where the, you know, like when you go in a second story, it's like the vaulted ceiling yeah, kind of. Yeah. Is that the right term? Yeah. Anyway, but there's actually a couple indentions in that and they think that that's where the axe like, and that it's never sense. been repaired or whatever. That makes sense because when we did the Axe Man of New Orleans episode, I think a couple of those homes, there was axe indentions oh, okay. in the ceiling as well. Could that be what I'm thinking? No, no, I think I'm thinking of no. Sam and Colby. You're probably thinking Any, that. Anyway. I thought that was interesting. But God. I'm glad to know. And then I brought it up. I'm like, man, that was so bad. I, <laughs> let me just bring it up and start talking about it. Yeah, but uh, we learned our lesson on that one, especially when it comes to kids. We're, uh, yeah, I'm just not going to get that. No, I mean, we, we, it was the episode for its time. It, it, it had to be done. And I'm glad it's behind us. Me too. We even did it twice, didn't we? we yeah, we re aired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so terrible. We, we did it again. Anyway. Okay, keep going, sir. Sorry. So, uh, yeah, it was weird. It was quiet. And, you know, it was also weird that James hadn't come out to help him yet. That wasn't like James. So uh, the neighbor, Will Drew, he walked up to the Peterson's front door, and it was already open, like wide open. That's even weirder. So he called out James' name and made a joke about being late because he had accidentally slept in, but he got no answer. A moment later, the Peterson's dog trotted out to meet Lang, but was acting uncharacteristically timid. After calling out once more, he walked into the house. When he entered the kitchen, he discovered James Peterson dead on the floor and covered in blood. There was no phone in the Peterson's home, nor did Lang have a telephone in his home, so he ran straight out of there and jumped into the family's 1957 station wagon and drove to the nearest telephone, which was in Shell Lake, where he called the RCMP. Wow. Y'all were, Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman. You got Something it. Something like that. Yep, you got it. The first officer to arrive that morning was Corporal Barry Richards. Like Lang, he first saw James' dead body. 
He was only in boxer shorts and had multiple bullet wounds. James, not the cop. He showed up in his <laughs> uniform. James was... <laughs> I just noticed that that might sound weird. Oh, I Why did you casual. wear your uniform, Richards? Yeah. Some casual Friday? <laughs> Sorry. James was only in boxer shorts and had multiple bullet wounds. He was, without a doubt, deceased. Richards then made his way further into the home and discovered 11-year-old Dorothy dead on a cot in the living room. From there, he moved into the bedroom where he found five-year-old William, 13-year-old Mary, and two-year-old Colin all passed away on a mattress. They had all been shot. Also in the room was 17-year-old Jean and nine-year-old Pearl in a second bed. They were also deceased. Yes. Then Richards noticed the first sign of life since entering the house. Between the two bodies of Jean and Pearl, there was a slight movement under the blankets. He slowly pulled them back to reveal little Phyllis, just four years old, alive and unharmed, but in an obvious state of shock. Richards, yeah. I wonder, I mean, I should just probably let you keep reading. What? Well, it's just like if the other kids were protecting her. I don't know. That's a good thing to wonder. And there's two stories on how she survived. Okay. There's her story, and then there's uh, the killer's story. Oh, okay. And, of course, oh. the killer's story is probably bullshit. Yes, you have answers oh. on this. Full, oh, wow. This, all answers. <laughs> we know who did it. Exactly. Of course, yeah. You turned over a new leaf, Joe. <laughs> Two in one month. <laughs> Joe started Googling solved cases <laughs> instead of unsolved. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just keep going. Even his computer did said, "Did you mean unsolved?" No. He goes, "No, I didn't. No, I don't want to." These guys have been complaining about me (laughs) with the unsolved. (laughs) Nope. This one's solved. Let's just keep going. All right. Richards carefully scooped up the little girl and rushed back to his cruiser. From there, he drove her to a neighbor's farmhouse before racing back to Shell Lake to call in for backup and to retrieve a doctor from the town's medical clinic. So remember, this is 1967. Very rural. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even now, yeah. I think. Even now. <laughs> yeah, look at it now. <laughs> when Richards and the physician returned to the Peterson home, the officer walked behind the home for the first time. So, yeah, no one had really searched the place yet. When he walked back there, he discovered, this is one of the more, I mean, it's all horrible, but this is like extra horrible. He discovered Evelyn, the mother, and little baby Larry lying on the ground in the grass under an open window. They had also been shot. A few minutes later, the backup Richards had requested arrived and began to uh, tape off and survey the gruesome scene. In all, nine people were dead on the property. James, Evelyn, and the seven of their nine children, Jean, Mary, Dorothy, Pearl, William, Colin, and Larry. As we stated earlier, Kathy was not living there at the time. Although four-year-old Phyllis was in the house that morning, she had been spared. Whether that was intentional or not, we'll get into that later. The presence of powder burns suggested that nearly all the casualties had been shot at close range, if not execution style. As the police processed the scene, they discovered that every person killed in the home had been shot and that out of the 28 total shots that had been fired, only one missed its target. That's like a 99% rate. Well, I mean, yeah, but if they were all at basically point blank, you shouldn't miss. Right, yeah. It definitely denotes to say. yeah. It definitely denotes someone doing it in a calm manner. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. If anything. You can't give him credit for that accuracy. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah. I will not allow that. Yeah. (laughs) You get out right now, Joey, of the studio. (laughs) There were two wallets found in a field behind the house, both belonging to members of the Peterson family, and they were both empty. But 
It was unlikely that anyone in the house had been carrying any significant amount of money, so burglary was not really considered a viable motive. Also, the house was still in perfect order. Nothing had been rummaged through or ransacked, and there were no valuables missing. A later examination of the bodies would also rule out sexual assault as a motive, so authorities were at a complete loss as to what could have been the possible motive. As for evidence, they found several spent 22 caliber casings scattered around the home. Also, they found some bloody boot prints on the linoleum floor in the kitchen. They were a fairly unique pattern with a diamond print on the sole and a V shape on the heel. Hmm. Word spread quickly through the tiny community and the farms that surrounded it. People gathered their children in from the fields and backyards and locked their doors. Now, in those days, every single truck had a gun rack in the back glass with a couple rifles on it. And every farmer and townsfolk in the area armed themselves to the teeth over the next few days. They slept behind, hell, even up to the 80s, at least if you lived in Arkansas. You could go to Walmart, and every old yeah. truck out in Walmart parking lot had gun racks with, with a shotgun yeah. and a 30-30 and a 22 on it. Yeah. You can leave your windows down and nobody would take it. Yeah. Yeah. We got rear-ended in, like, right outside Prairie Grove, and we were still living in Cincinnati, so I was, like, seven years old, probably. and. I was sitting next to my dad, and we got rear-ended by this guy. I think I've told this story before. And I was the only one that got injured, and it whipped my head back, and I hit my head, the back of my head, on one of his rifles on the gun rack. Because my dad always had, you know, mm -hmm. guns back there. And uh, my dad was in his 70s at this point, or late 60s. And uh, he jumped out of the truck and grabbed a hammer out of the bed and walked back and pulled the guy out that had been driving and held the hammer up like he was pissed because I... I was hurt. Yeah. He didn't do anything to the guy, but the guy, like, you could, you know, I, I could still see the guy's face. Like, this guy was looking directly into the eyes of, <laughs> of I don't know. Glad he, he didn't say the wrong thing. I don't think he said anything. But, yeah, I remember ambulance showing up and everything. I wasn't that hurt, you know. Yeah. I, we, we went on Still, back, yeah. I just said that to say, even up to the 80s and probably, not, I mean. Oh, yeah. I kind of even remember in high school, you'd yeah. see some guns on on gun racks, you know. Yeah. Even, even then. It's funny. He had two guns in the gun rack. He took the hammer. Yeah. Good thing. Well, he's like, I don't need the gun. <laughs> All I need is this hammer. Yeah. So, yeah, everyone, they armed themselves to the teeth because, my God, like, I, an entire family gets massacred in this little tiny community, and you have no clue yeah. who did it. That's terrifying. Yeah, for sure. Uh, everybody slept with all the lights on and a rifle by their side for the next few nights. Now, remember, the Petersons were well-known and loved in this little community, and they'd just been murdered. Even baby Larry, for the love of God. So the citizens of Shell Lake were not only terrified, they were pissed. Oh, yeah. There was more than a few old farmers who wouldn't think twice about using their shotgun to put a grapefruit-sized hole through whoever attacked the Peterson family if they tried to dare attack their house, too. Meanwhile, before the officers were even finished processing the house, others were busy setting up a massive manhunt. Someone had just murdered nine people in cold blood, and they were still at large. Every available officer within 50 miles was called in, so probably four officers, I don't know. Yeah. Not very, considering where they were. Roadblocks were set up, and 75 police dogs were brought in to search the entire Peterson farm and surrounding areas. The chief investigators on the case were Brian Sawyer and Staff Sergeant Ronald Sundegard, and they noticed that the shell casings left behind had to belong to one of only three models of gun. They also sent the boot prints in for forensic testing to a lab in the unfortunately named capital of Saskatchewan, which is Regina. 
Many locals felt that there was no way a single gunman could have walked in there and executed nine out of 10 members of the family without someone escaping. And rumors began to fly that there had been multiple gunmen. Investigators weren't so sure, though. As we've stated several times by now, the Petersons were a pleasant, salt-of-the-earth group of farmers, not some Italian crime family. It seemed unlikely that an orchestrated hit would be pulled on them. Yeah, it does. We're not talking about the Gambinos or something. Yeah. Also, considering the fact that the attack had occurred while all or most of the family had been asleep, it might not be so hard to get the drop on that many people, even though, like, why wouldn't the first shot have woken up everyone? It's very yeah, but weird. Even if you heard a gunshot, would you just like immediately run out? I mean, if you're a kid, you might just freeze. Yeah, like you know. Yeah, I don't know. What's that about? <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> made me laugh though. Anyway, but yeah, they look. They were all inside this tiny home with like, yeah. just a couple of rooms. I don't know. Maybe they got them in there and they couldn't run anywhere. We obviously know that Evelyn and the baby, they tried to get out the window, so they did try. Yeah. Um, from the get-go, Sawyer and Sundegard had a hunch that the massacre of the Peterson family was probably a random, pointless spree killing by someone local to the area and probably deranged or mentally ill. Their prediction would prove to be right on the money. It's like a profile. Yeah. I mean, right on the money. It's crazy. On August 17th, and that was just two days after the murders, a farmer walked into the Shellbrook RCMP office and told them that his neighbor's son had recently been uh, released from a mental institution. He said that the guy had an obsession with guns and was overall a, a weird, creepy dude, and he might be worth looking at for the Peterson massacre. Wow. So it going to be that easy? Pretty much. Really? Yeah. Wow. I guess, though, in, the, in a community that small... Sure. Like, the one weirdo is just really going to stand out. So, maybe, I don't know. Um, he didn't think to, like, drive a far away? Right. I don't know. No. No, it's pretty local. It's like, they won't suspect me. I just got out of the mental institution. <laughs> and I live right here in the, in the They'll neighborhood. They'll think it's a coincidence. <laughs> be like, that's too easy. It can't be him. Yeah. We're not even looking at him. Yeah. Back to my hunch. <laughs> nope, their hunch was right. Wow. This guy that the farmer was talking about, his name was Victor Ernest Hoffman. Okay. The police wasted no time in making the 33-mile drive southeast to the village of Leesk, where Hoffman lived. That's a little bit away, but not really. Not really. Not, not here when I'm looking at this map. Right. I mean, I'm sure someone on the left side of that map knows very well someone on the right side, and that's like how many miles? 40 miles, probably. Can you do a measure distance? Anyway, I mean, I'm just saying, like, you know, you just probably know them. Oh, yeah. You probably go to some of those four towns that we see, which they're not probably <laughs> so even right towns. here's Leesk, right here. Yeah. Yeah. Do as the crow flies. This was... Um, Shell Lake. This is Shell Lake right here. Yeah. Or here's the actual city of Shell Lake. Yeah. It ain't so, that far. As the crow flies, it looks like it's 15 miles. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it probably is. Yeah. The roads go way out of the way to get there. So. Yeah. Yes. It, was, it wasn't It was as far yeah. as it sounds like. So, yeah. They make the drive. They get to the house. Before they even knock on the Hoffman's front door, though, they see a major piece of evidence. Sitting on the front porch was a pair of boots with the exact patterns oh, as the prints that were goodness. left in the victim's blood. Yeah. 
<laughs> Robert Hoffman, which is uh, the father, I guess, he answers the door. He politely answered the officer's questions. When asked if there was a 22 caliber rifle in the house, he said, yes, there was. 23 miles. 23. Okay, not As bad. As the crow flies. So this was not a bombshell discovery, finding out that there was a 22 caliber gun in the house. There was a 22 caliber gun in every house then. Yeah. In every house. Nonetheless, Robert agreed to relinquish both the 22 rifle and the boots for testing. The boots? Still had blood on them. What are you talking about? Are you talking about the boots? <laughs> Did they sell blood on them? Uh, yeah. Within just 24 hours, the test on the shell casings and the rifle came back. It was the Hoffman's rifle that had murdered the Peterson family. On August 19th, just four days after the murder, Victor Hoffman was arrested. He was taken to police headquarters where he immediately confessed to murdering nine members of the Peterson family in cold blood. So he just fought out, yep, I did it? Oh, yeah, he didn't even waste any time. They set him down. All right, son, we're going to ask a few questions. And then as they took the breath to ask the first question, he's like, I did it. I killed them all. And how old was he? Oh, shit, man. You have these goddamn questions. He was pretty young, like 20-something, early 20s. Golly. Yeah, man. Tonight on Warm Case Files. <laughs> didn't even have a chance to go cold. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's crazy. Woo! And I'm going to assume the boots came back. I don't know. I forgot we were talking about that. Well, I mean, I'm sure all they got to do is like, just look at the pattern. Right. Probably set it on the, if they had a photocopier. I don't know what photocopier is. Seems like you set the boot on a... <laughs> Photocopy and hit start. <laughs> I keep just laughing over stuff. And then you make the little thing and you compare it to the blood splatter. Yeah. You know what I think? I think a long time ago, I think a long time ago in, in early Canadian lore, uh, you know, they drink all that maple syrup. Sure. I think it makes your tongue kind of stick to the roof of your mouth where it's kind of <laughs> hard to say the owl. So I think way back then, you know, they took a big swig of maple syrup and they're t- talking to boot and it just kind of took off. It's all because this came... This case wrapped up so fast. Instead of instead of speculating about the case, we're thinking about <laughs> tongues sticking to the roof of their mouths. Yeah. No, it's all good. Hey, maybe that's what it's about. Oh, about. okay. Sorry. The Hoffmans, like the Petersons, were your typical farming family. They grew grain and raised cattle, just like the Petersons, and had several children, just like the Petersons. They had seven, actually, a little bit less, but they had seven, and their father, Robert, was German, and mother, Stella, was Ukrainian. Hmm. The Hoffmans were also a well-respected family and were very religious, attending the local Lutheran church every week. Victor was the fifth of those seven kids, born in 1946. Now, like the other Hoffman children, Victor seemed well-mannered, kind of outgoing, at least in the beginning. Not long after starting school, though, he began to withdraw from the other kids and keep mainly to himself. It was not long after this, around age seven or eight, that Victor started to hallucinate. He'd later say he was visited by the devil, who appeared as a tall, naked black figure with a long tail. He said he'd wake up to drumming sounds pounding in his room and his head, and he was plagued by tapping noises that uh, wherever he went, they would follow him. Did he mention if he left any footprints in England? (laughs) Yeah, we could tie these two cases together. It was in England almost 100 years, oh, over 100 years ago in 1855. I would speculate that he hated his whole family enough that he saw another family that was like his. Mm. Mm. Like, oh, you yeah. You know, the psychology. Very similar. Yes. Yeah, the psychology, you know, the same way like killers kill within their own race mm. and socioeconomic. Well, 
well, not really socioeconomic because, you know, prostitutes wouldn't fit that. But you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. did he ever admit to that? Uh, we know why. We know exactly. Oh, okay. Why. Okay. And we were, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, yeah, he is convinced the devil was tormenting him. And he said he felt like he was in the middle of a battle between God and Satan. It's him. One way to win is to do what the devil would want. <laughs> Obviously, right? He had some weird reasons for this. Oh, yeah. I mean, they don't make any sense, but it's sure it's what he gave. Yeah, I gotcha. These visions continued as Victor's mental state began to deteriorate. His behavior became erratic and grades started to suffer. So much so that he had to repeat the third grade. By age 10, he had began to feel the urge to kill. And before long, it was all he could think about. When a parent or a teacher or a kid at school would talk to him, he'd tune them out and nearly go into a trance, fantasizing about various ways of taking their lives. As so many killers do, Victor started out by torturing and killing animals. First cats, then squirrels, and then neighborhood dogs that had the misfortune to venture too close to the Hoffman farm. Eventually, Victor grew tired of attacking animals, and he went after a boy that was about his age, about 12 or so. He did not kill the boy, but brutally attacked him for several minutes before stopping and making the boy promise not to tell. And the boy never did. So we only know this, I guess, because Victor told about it later. Mm. That's a little Dahmer-esque. Very much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the only way. And he never, I guess, never named the boy, or maybe he didn't know who it was, but that's just what something he brought up after he was jailed for killing the Petersons. Yeah. Yeah, he opened up about all of it. He was also very Dahmer-esque in, like, Dahmer, he he pretty much immediately was just like, oh, yeah, I did it. Here's why, you know, here's why. Here's when it started. I mean, he told him everything. And so that's Which like, that at least makes me believe their devil thing more, you know? Yeah. The but, devil made me do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, it seems like if that wasn't true wouldn't be so quick. I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. Yeah. It's very weird. And I wonder, I mean, maybe they really believed it. Yeah. Maybe he really believed the devil was guiding his hand or something. I don't know. Yeah. And plus, they, at that point, they probably get in touch with somebody that's pretty highly trained that can, you know, say the right things to, to coax out the truth. Yeah. Unless just immediately he's just started saying... You know, which it sounds like he probably did. It seems like it was almost right away. Yeah. yeah. He wasted no time. It's like probably a relief, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think it was the same for Dahmer. A relief. Yeah. Because yeah. he'd been holding on to it for so long. Yeah. Didn't, uh, what, who was it? Uh, was it BTK or somebody that was like, you know, you guys need to catch me before I, who was that? That actually said that in one of his letters. I, it may Maybe have been. Zodiac or It something. was either the BTK or Zodiac. Yeah. It was like something about like telling the cops to do their job and catch them. And I can't help but feel that BTK, some of those serial killers, they're like savvy for so long and then they get caught doing the stupidest thing. I almost think that they want to. Yeah. With BTK, it was the floppy disk. Yeah. When he actually asked the cops, like, <laughs> if you won't be able to tell where it came from, will you? And they're like, no. And so he gave, he sent them the floppy disk. I just think by then he was just like, you know what? Whatever. Maybe they can't. Yeah. Maybe. I think, you know, 15 years early, earlier, he would have been way too cautious. He even commented on that. It's like, you lied to me or whatever. Yeah. You lied to me. I may be a killer, but at least I'm not a liar. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, did you tell your wife you're a killer all these years? <laughs> uh, 
Well, it never came up. Yeah. She never asked me, so... Yeah, my wife's never asked me if I was a killer either, so that'd be an easy one to skate by. Yeah, exactly. You're not a killer, are you? Yeah. You have to tell me if you are. <laughs> Damn it! Why did this come up? Um, no, I have to kill you. <laughs> not long after uh, this, the, the incident with the young boy that he beat up, uh, and he was a young boy as well at the time, so let's get that straight. Victor also began hearing voices that he believed were from the devil. The devil would call out to him and offer to make him rich if he would just bow down and worship him. Mm. Like we said, the Hoffmans were devout Lutherans and Victor was too afraid to bow down to Satan. Still, the devil regularly appeared to him and made this offer and Victor, around this time, also began to see angels. And he probably never even taught him to play guitar either. That's a sad thing. He could have been another Robert Johnson, a Canadian... Robert Johnson. Whoa, yeah. Instead of killing, he could have got the devil to teach him how to play. <laughs> I don't know. That's just that's just me. Did we talk about that on another episode? Oh, the, yeah. The... We've talked about that a few times. Okay. How okay. he came back in a short amount of time. Uh, we talked about that in a little bit of the mu- one of some of the music ones, or one of the music ones. Oh, yeah, we did. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. It was the... Um... 20, 27 or, Club. Yeah, 27. Yeah, there we go. Because Robert that's Johnson it. died at that's 27. It. Yep. Oh, okay. That's it. Good, good memory, Sam. Yeah. As Victor's psychosis grew, so too did his problems at school. He'd already repeated the third grade, like I said, and he had to repeat the ninth grade as well. Not long after this, he became interested in guns, and that interest soon turned into an obsession. At age 15, he broke into a store in Leask and stole several firearms. Despite these problems, though, his family believed Victor was overall a good kid who just had trouble paying attention. Yeah. See, Victor had managed to keep his visions, the voices, the murderous urges, and the animal torture and killing completely away from his family. So they didn't, all they knew was... Oh, they didn't know about the stealing the guns? No. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. So I think all they knew was he'd repeated a few grades. Yeah. So far, the only time they been aware of any trouble was when they were called to meet with the school principal after Victor had skipped school for a few too many days. So there's just a whole lot going on. They don't know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Then at age 17, Victor broke into the same store as two years before and stole yet more guns. Wow. This time he was caught after his neighbors had noticed him outside shooting some of the guns that matched the description of the stolen guns and they turned him in. Yeah, not a great plan. <laughs> Guns are loud. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he knows that. Since it was his first offense, Victor only spent 24 hours in jail, and he was handed a two-year suspended sentence. This did seem to wake him up concerning his behavior, but it did nothing to quell his mounting psychosis. As he transitioned into his 20s, his mental state deteriorated more and more rapidly. He began to pass out and collapse into fits that lasted for several minutes. That old urge to kill had resurfaced and was stronger than ever. And he also began to see and hear the devil on a daily basis now. Satan would constantly try to convince Victor to sell him his soul and threaten to kill him if he didn't. So now it's like, I will kill you if you don't sell him your soul. Victor also began to see angels more and more, and they would try to get him to kill the devil, promising him eternity in heaven if he did. Really wanted that soul. <laughs> Were they on his shoulders? Like one on one shoulder, one on the other? Like the 80s sitcom? Not sure. Not okay. sure if that's how it went. The two little Zach Morrises? Yeah. 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 I also did that on Full House with Michelle. That too? Yeah. Oh, they yeah. did that too, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. My fear, I'm going to look at my right shoulder and the devil's going to be telling me to do the bad thing. 
And I'm going to look at my left shoulder and there's another devil. He's like, <laughs> yeah, go yes! ahead. I'm like, oh my goodness, I got two bad influences. <laughs> All right. He, in fact, did try to shoot at the devil one time. Oh, really? Yeah, according to Victor, he said, yeah, I tried to shoot him one time, but he was unsuccessful. <laughs> Only hit his fiddle. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> that was a Stradivarius! <laughs> He said he then captured him somehow, but the devil's odor was so foul and putrid that Victor was forced to let him loose again. He caught the devil, yeah, but the devil was stanky, so he had to let him loose. Yeah, I could see that. You caught him on Wednesday, which is right after Taco Tuesday. Oh, had that's to let him not go. good. That's not, good. <laughs> not a good day. It was at this time, when Victor was 21, that he could finally no longer hide his psychosis from his family. His behavior became so wild and unpredictable. He'd go... <laughs> He'd go from totally calm and quiet one moment to raging and screaming the next. He was a teenage girl. No. After... (laughs) (laughs) I just want my daughter to hear that part and be like, whatever. After several minutes, he would break into nonsensical fits of laughter before suddenly being quiet again. Again. Like Tom Cruise. (laughs) His family was deeply disturbed and, well, frightened of what he had become. Then... Early on the morning of May 27th, 1967, Victor took one of the guns from the house, walked out into a field, and began shooting it wildly into the air. I wonder if, uh, I wonder if he should have been kept from those guns. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not some kind of anti-gun person, but, yeah, I don't know. Hey, this guy with well-documented mental psychosis problems is in the house. Let's not have guns in there with him. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, get all that money out of that safe and let's put our guns in there. Yeah. We could have one of the first gun safes. Now I know that it was go way back. But <laughs> anyway, hey, something. Something. I don't know. So like we've we the parents have been ignoring a lot of weird stuff up until about now. Okay. Yeah. This is kind of what forced them to kind of uh pay attention to it. He's out there going crazy, shooting into the air. His terrified mother ran up to him and asked, Victor, Victor, what's going on? What's this about? Right? <laughs> I'm going to do that so many more times, I'll just tell you. He replied, I shot the devil. Yeah, but the devil's down, not up. He's way confused. I don't understand. He needs to be shooting into the ground. I know, right? Thankfully, Stella was able to calm Victor down and get the rifle away from him before anything else happened. Right after this, he told his mother that he was feeling sick, and it was because of something they'd sprayed on the grain. Following this announcement, he jumped in the family sedan and tore out of the driveway and down the dirt road. As soon as he was gone, the family frantically gathered up and hid all the guns. Oh, there we go. (laughs) He was 21 at this point. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Yes. 21 years later, catching on. (laughs) But he hadn't shot anyone yet. True. Okay. There you go. Sorry. I stand corrected. Good job, people. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're trying now. Now, a little while later, Victor returned and he immediately went looking for the guns. Uh, when he couldn't find them, he became enraged and demanded the family give them back to him. Yeah, I stole those fair and square <laughs> from that store twice. And I'm clearly capable enough to have them. Who's going to shoot the devil if I don't? <laughs> well, they refused to give back the guns and Victor then demanded to speak to their pastor. Okay. I don't know, where, I don't know what led that to the next, why that was the next step. Because he's shooting the devil. He would understand. Oh, okay. Robert drove into town and returned a while later with their pastor, and Victor and the holy man went into a separate room to talk. 
Robert and Stella listened in on the other side of the door, and they were beyond disturbed at what they heard. But the scariest thing Victor said was the last thing Victor said. As the pastor said, Victor, I I hope our talk today has helped you. On his way out, Victor said, I want to kill my mom. Mm. Yeah. So then the pastor was like, do we need to start all over? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because I don't feel like we've gotten anywhere. This was the final straw for the Hoffmans. And they admitted Victor into the Saskatchewan Hospital in North Battleford, located about an hour away from Leask, so a mental hospital. Okay. Once there, doctors observed some bizarre behavior. Despite being frail, weak, and exhausted, Victor, he still couldn't sleep. What he did muster up the energy for, though, was masturbation. Okay. Victor did it constantly. Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. And when he wasn't doing that, he was talking about it or talking about sex to the other patients. Wait, he's about to be released. I'm just skipping ahead. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't there very long. All right, well, so, there we go. I mean... In these old cases, you always find stuff. I mean, I'm not trying to act like I'm a know-it-all or anything. <laughs> but these old cases just think, just glaring, super frustrating things. But keep going, sir. You're we t- we, we got to kick him out. The hospital budget can't afford all these, all these Jergens and Kleenex. He's killing us. Sam knew I was going there. He's, we got to get rid of him. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Victor was not combative to the staff while at the hospital. He was too busy. He didn't even have two free hands. What, what could he have done? <laughs> he wasn't cooperative either, though. He barely answered questions and seemed indifferent to the entire process. He eventually started talking, though, after a while, and told the doctors all about seeing the devil and the angels and the battles that they fought over for his soul. He said he was uncertain of his gender because the devil had stolen his brain and replaced it with a female's brain from some lady named Denise, and now Denise was trying to take over his body. Wow. The staff did their best to convince Victor that these were all merely hallucinations, a product of his own sick mind, but he insisted that they were too real to be just visions. He also told them his fascination with murder and of his urges to kill. He said he thought about killing his parents and all of his siblings. He said he didn't even hate them. He wasn't angry with them. It just was something he just wanted to do. Hmm. Victor was assessed and diagnosed as a chronic schizophrenic, and it was their recommendation that he remain there for treatment for an unspecified amount of time for treatment. Like three months. Because <laughs> I know he's getting out. Yeah. A whole bunch of stuff failed. The Parts of the system failed, you know, in the process of what led up to the Peterson's yeah. murder. Now, what was treatment for schizophrenia in the 60s? Shock therapy. Yes, sir. Heavy medication and a series of electroshock therapy sessions. That's what they did. According to the doctors, as well as Victor's parents, the treatments, according to them, initially produced improvement. After 12 shock therapy sessions were completed, Victor was no longer acting manic or constantly masturbating. And even said the devil and angels had uh, likely left his head. Yeah. Shocked him out of there. (laughs) Yeah. Whether or not Victor meant this. I think I would say that too. Yep, they're gone. Yeah. (laughs) I'm much better now. Uh, I never want to touch my pee-pee again. (laughs) Please let me out of here. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. I'm cured. Don't shock me anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Any kind of results they had, you had to be due to that. Come on. (laughs) Sex, ew. Yeah. (laughs) Please let me out. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I don't want to 
Hmm. Regardless of whether he was saying it just to get out of there or if he meant it, after one month, he was released to the care of his parents on July 26, 1967. He overshot it, Ivan. Yeah, I know. By two months. <laughs> uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Especially if you ever read in, I don't know, Joe, you have the frontal lobotomy. Oh, my God. I mean, that did work, but only because it damaged most of your brain. It's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Right? And if you've never looked it up and you're squeamish, I wouldn't look it up. I mean, just live the rest of your life and be happy and, you know, look at the sunshine and smell the roses. But if you're dying to know, you should look it up. Yeah. It's crazy. And on the uh, Dr. Demento show on Sunday nights when I was a kid, I'd listen to, there's a, did you listen to that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Remember the song, uh, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than have a frontal Frontal lobotomy. lobotomy. Yeah. Yeah. I may be drunk, but at least I'm not insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the song was all tongue in cheek about it, but yeah, um, horrible, horrible, horrible. I I can't get it out of my head what they do on YouTube. There's some old videos from mm. the '60s of patients who had had lobotomies. Yeah, and you're right; they're basically just they basically just stared out the window and smoked cigarettes. The rest are, yeah, they weren't a problem anymore, but they interview or talk to one of the ladies on one of the videos I saw and she could talk, but man, it was like the lights on, but no one's home. Yeah. Yeah. It was very creepy, man. And uh, yeah. And it was basically, it was just an, a long ice pick thing. And it's not like <laughs> they were doing it while looking at an x-ray. No, they just held your nose up and stuck it in there and was like, eh, probably about here. And they would just, boom, they would just Dang. shove it up in your brain. No kidding. Like break through your cartilage Ugh. and just jam it into your brain. Yeah. Yeah. Just totally Awesomeness. crazy. So he's in there a month. A month. 12 electroshock therapy sessions and a bunch of heavy medications that they sent him home with. Keep taking these medications, right? And a lot of masturbating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, but that's the first part anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Not the last part of it. No. After the shock therapy. So, yeah, he was released on July 26, 1967. The staff told them that although Victor was schizophrenic, they believed as long as he took his medication and was carefully looked after, he could more or less manage a normal everyday life. Yeah. Go back to the family you said you wanted to kill just... <laughs> Just because you wanted to do it. Yeah. Let them watch after you. I mean, he hasn't masturbated in four days. So (laughs) I think he's good to go. It's a miracle. (laughs) We've exercised the demon. (laughs) All right. Awesome. I knew you were going to say that. I didn't think you. I said three months because I thought you were going to say like six months or a year. But I, I even overshot that. Yeah. No. Canada is weird because even years later, I think it was. Early 2000s. Do you remember the case of the guy, Victor Lee? His name was Victor, too, I think. On the Greyhound bus that just pulled out that knife and beheaded the guy next to him? No, I didn't hear about that. Oh, yeah. This is absolutely true. Early, mid-2000s, he just pulls out a knife. Yes. Grabs the hair of the guy next to him and saws off his head while everyone on the Greyhound is screaming and running off. I remember that. I remember listening to a different podcast Yes, And then for like the next hour or two... You know, obviously everyone else runs out. But he's, he was still on the bus. He's still on the bus, yeah. walking around, holding the head out the window, eating parts of the body while all the RCMP is circled around yeah. like, what the hell are we supposed to do? Man. That's not even the craziest part. 
Today, that guy is a free man. Yeah. That guy is no longer in any institution or prison or anything. That guy is a free man. That guy is released. How? He was released years ago. How? He went to a mental facility and they said he completed his treatment and, yep. they, do, and they don't think he will reoffend. And yeah. that dude is out. So okay, Canada. I'm not getting on any buses with them. <laughs> yeah. Someone is, though. Yeah, I bet many people have. I mean, dudes, I don't know. Isn't that wild? So yeah. I'm saying Canada is weird. I remember listening to that on uh, Chris Jericho's podcast. Okay. He talked about that. I think I sent that episode to you. Maybe I mean, it's like a couple of years ago that I listened to that. Yeah. yeah. It's been a while back. And I feel like it was only a few years before, you know, until he was out. It wasn't even that long. Well, once Victor was back home, the hallucinations returned with a vengeance, as did his murderous urges. Well, they weren't shocking him. Right. Not that I'm, don't misunderstand me. Well, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, and plus, I don't think he was taking his meds still. Yeah. I think right. stop. Yeah. He was now having visions of the devil on a daily basis and dreamt of murdering people every day. Then, not even two weeks after arriving home, oh, that's right, he stopped taking his medication then. Okay. But I think it got worse... I think that all that stuff came back without the electroshock therapy for whatever that's worth. But then I think when he stopped taking his meds was when it was like overdrive. Okay. Uh, he had always fantasized about killing someone, but now he had made a conscious decision he was going to go through with it. It was just a matter of who and when. At the dinner table, every night, he would stare at each family member and contemplate their death. Should I kill mom, dad, one of my brothers, someone at school? Who will it be? On August the 12th, a great realization dawned upon Victor. He had to kill someone because that would demonstrate his loyalty to the devil and that would garner him favor with the Prince of Darkness. He finally chose a side. He's just shooting at him before the hospital. Man, I'm really sorry about that whole shooting at you thing in the field. I've decided I want to join the Prince of Darkness. That's what he decided. Okay. <laughs> In the early morning hours of August 15th, Victor loaded a rifle and a box of ammunition into the family car, and he drove into the darkness. He had no specific destination, but he knew that when he found the right place, he'd recognize it. Still couldn't have those guns locked up, but I, I, I get it. I mean, it's inconvenient to lock them up for more than a month or two. See, there you go. They, uh, Sorry, I'm going back to that. Well, no, that's a good point. I mean... Just got out. Not the, to say he wouldn't break into some place and steal a gun, but at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I get that. But you just don't make them make it easy. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. Anyway, load up the guns, ammo. Gotcha. Headed out into the darkness. He drives about 40 minutes uh, northwest and ended up near the little village of, well, we all know this by now, Shell Lake. He drove past town and pulled into uh, a lonely dirt road that stretched out into the surrounding farmland. He drove by several houses before seeing a small white house that he instantly recognized from his visions. This was the place. So he didn't know these people? No. This was absolutely random. Okay. Whoa. Yeah. So it's not even like what you said earlier yeah. of a family that just kind of mirrored his. No, yeah. that, that's why I just said interesting. Huh. But yeah. I mean, it was that's what you would think. But no, the, in his mind, the devil had shown him this house in one of his visions and so when he saw it he took his sign from satan like this is the place but i guess most houses would mirror his in some way yeah but yeah okay little totally you know, random. little farmhouses yeah probably full of families over. yeah he had no uh, no idea who lived there but he had just chosen the peterson farm to carry out the massacre 
Victor slowly idled the car into their driveway and cut the engine. Just as the sun was rising, he retrieved the Browning 22 caliber pump action repeater rifle from the back seat, loaded it, grabbed the box of ammunition, and crept up to the front door. No one locked their door in those days. Uh, so it was open, and Victor, he just opened the door and slipped inside. Now, I know <laughs> this is funny that you guys brought this up way earlier at the beginning. I know we've spent uh, some time going into some gruesome details before on this podcast, like in the Velisca Axe Murders, right? And the Betty Gore series. Can't forget that one. But like I said earlier, we're going to stay fairly vague with this one, mainly because most of the fatalities, or half, were, were kids, mm-hmm. including a toddler and an 18-month-old, and I ain't about that, or even talking about it. So the gory details are out there. If you want them, you know, you can read them, but, or you can just listen to what I'm about to say, and that's what I suggest. Let's just say that for his part, James, the dad, he did try like hell to fight Victor off. He was shot from what they believe, according to the evidence, seven times before he finally went down. So this dude fought Victor with the gun and was shot seven times before he finally went down. So that is, I mean, that's fighting like hell. Uh, And then, of course, he was shot even more times after that once he went down. But yes, James Peterson died protecting his family for sure. As for the others, we know that they were killed, so let's leave it at that. I'm not getting into the details. Evelyn and baby Larry were in the backyard under that open window because they had tried to escape, but they were unsuccessful. And like I said, four-year-old Phyllis was spared. At first, Victor said it was because he hadn't noticed her under the covers between her two older sisters. But later, he claimed he had seen her and spared her because she, quote, had the face of an angel. Mm. He didn't see her. He didn't know she was there. So I think what whoever said it earlier, I think the other kids probably consciously hit her between them. Yeah. You know? Like, really, he shot an 18-month-old in the head. You think this guy spared a four-year-old? Like, no, he didn't. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion. Yeah. I, think, I think the first version of the story he told was the true one. He just didn't see her. Because of his very obvious mental illness, Victor was found not guilty by reason of insanity, but he was committed for treatment uh, at a mental institution in southern Ontario and that's for what, six months. <laughs> <laughs> no, he actually stayed there for the rest of his life. Okay. Yeah. In 1992, 25 years later, Victor was interviewed and said he still had visions of the devil and he showed little remorse or responsibility for the worst massacre in Saskatchewan's history. Despite this, in 2001, he was granted escorted day passes from the facility, which upset a lot of people, especially members of the Peterson family. Then, just three years later, he died of cancer on May 21st, 2004, at the age of 56. Which is good, because he was probably on his way to actually being just let out within a few Mm -hmm. years. I mean, that's my guess. Yeah. After the murders, little Phyllis went to live with her only remaining sibling, Kathy, in B.C. They ended up moving back to Shell Lake to be close to the few remaining members of the Peterson family who remained there. Kathy and her husband went on to have four kids of their own, so Phyllis got to live out the end of her childhood just as it had begun in a large family with several siblings buzzing around the house. CBC News in Canada interviewed Kathy and Phyllis in 2017, 50 years after the murders. They expressed their frustrations that Victor was uh, ever allowed back in, out of the facility on those day passes and before he murdered their family, of course, and said they doubted the mental health care system is any better now than it was in 67. <laughs> wow. Which is true if they let the Greyhound saw the head true. off the guy out. Vince Lee was that guy's Not name. Not Victor, Vince Lee. Yeah. Okay, Vince Lee, yeah. What is it? Does it say anything about 
Like he's still out, right? I'm not wrong. Yeah, I just looked up that episode okay. I listened to. Yeah, I went to was, high school with a serial killer. Yeah, was it a guy on there that went to school with him? Chris Jericho it was knew Chris a guy. Jericho. Oh, okay. yeah, but it it wasn't Vince Lee. It was another guy. But then that guy was some is somehow tied to Vince Lee. Mm, okay, just like to sum that up, this dude that Chris Jericho went to high school with, and another guy murdered this old man in his home and didn't go to prison or anything for it. Yeah. Canada's got, got away with it. Canada's got some weird. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to get furious at the Canadian. And the, and they system, broke into the house. They broke into the house, killed the old man. Yes. And, and didn't get convicted. Uh, wow. what, what's that documentary? Uh, it's called Dear Zachary. And it was a 2008 documentary. Um, my God, I'll just say, if you ever just want to ball your eyes out at a documentary for an hour, but I'm talking the Canadian system is jacked. I don't know if it's still as bad now as it was then, but they failed this kid over and over and over. This woman was an absolute batshit crazy lunatic. And she just kept getting custody of this kid and, and kept just, it was nuts. It was nuts. Um, I won't give it away if anyone wants to watch it, but it's called dear Zachary. And it's just, you will, you'll be like frothing at the mouth. You'll be so pissed off at the Canadian uh, mental health system and the, penal system and all that stuff. Yeah. And anyway, all right. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that says like the the boys like they were 15, didn't show up to school one day. Turns out they broke into the guy's house, killed him, didn't serve a day in jail, and then the journalist that covered that story and then followed that uh Rob Chalk, I think is the guy's name, the the serial killer that Chris Jericho went to school with. It says uh that he shares the crazy details that led to no jail time for the two then 15-year-old boys and then what happened to Rob in the years following that made him a serial killer. Yeah. Oh, so that was just the start. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So that guy gets off scot-free, but if you peacefully protest a, a medical mandate, you have all your assets froze and your bank <gasps> accounts frozen and you're called racist. And so Canada's got some... Topsy turvy ideas up there. I don't know what's going. On. I don't think they're all like that, but very confusing stuff. Now, what's that about? I don't know what that's about. about. What's it about? Canada? Let us know. <laughs> the fact is that Victor never should have been out in in the free world in the first place. We all know that. Oh yeah, a system that wasn't equipped or knowledgeable enough to recognize the true extent of his illness allowed him to slip through the cracks, and as a result, nine innocent people lost their lives. Or maybe Victor was showing some improvement and they genuinely believed he was getting better and could never have known that he was going to lose his mind and go on a murder spree. I don't know. Yeah. But a month is a short time. (laughs) We'll we'll agree there. Yes. I would say so. The little house near Shell Lake where 11 members of the Peterson family once lived, worked and played, burnt down a few years after the massacre. In the nearby cemetery, a stone monument stands above the Peterson family grave. It reads... In the night of death, hope sees a star and listening love can hear the rustle of a wing. Sam, that's a pretty effed up story, eh? Yeah, you know, I just want to say, (laughs) Joe, you do an amazing job at doing all this research and that's what I appreciate about you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, is that? Yeah. Figured out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank thank you, Squirrely Dan. That was a good one and a bad one all in the same. Yeah. So good it was bad. So bad it was good. Yep. I mean, it was definitely, there was no questions left, really. Yeah. 
Now, we have one coming up in the next week or two that's a total mystery, so I'll get to frustrate you. Okay. Well, that's okay. Hey, I feel like we should uh, be pretty thankful. We've got a few solved cases. Yeah, you've got you've gotten several in a row. Yeah. And I don't think I utilized my terrible Canadian accent once throughout that whole thing other than saying a boot. They wouldn't have any things like reporters. It was pretty serious. Question. So. Yeah, that's hard to. Yeah, we'll do our best at being serious. Listen to me. It was pretty serious. It was definitely serious. It was. <laughs> it was way more than pretty serious. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. We still joked around a little bit, I guess, but that's all right. Well, we, we, that's what we do. We're, we're us. It's a, we're going to be us. So that's all I got for tonight. What about you guys? Yeah, well, that was a good one. Show Lake Massacre. Thank you for listening, everyone. Good night. Let me tell you about some fellas I know named Ivan, Sam, and Joe. They got themselves a little podcast, you know. And they talk about everything under the sun that they find interesting, spooky, or fun. And they sure ain't trying to impress no one. Remedy to too much time on your answers. Take a little listen to the dawn of Manti. They talk about killers, monsters, and cults. French mates from hell, disappeared folks. Occasionally throw in a few dad jokes. They try to make every story extra nice. By adding their own ginger spice. Not one time or two, but thrice. Right, 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 right. The remedy to too much time on you answers. Take a little listen to the dawn of Manti. Now I'm sure these fellas will be around for quite a spell. Cause there sure ain't no shortage of stories to tell. This old world's as weird as hell. But hell, even if nobody listened, you know they'd maintain a fine disposition. Cause shooting the breeze is kind of their mission. Remedy to too much time on your answers. Take a little listen to the dawn of Too much time on your answers Take a little listen to the dawn of Manti